Luke 11, 1 to 13. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive, forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in, this, in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is, he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he, be, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? You may be seated. The last little while when I've preached here at Weavertown, I have been preaching on spiritual disciplines, sort of subject by subject as, uh, as it was my turn to preach. Spiritual disciplines. Now, I've come to believe that there is really no way to godliness. There is no way to maturity or growth except through discipline. I think I've discovered for myself, perhaps more than any other quarterly, Spiritual discipline will have the greatest influence on whether we do well spiritually or not. Invariably, defeated Christians are undisciplined Christians. And just to refresh, spiritual disciplines as I'm defining them here in this series of sermons, are not attitudes. They are actions. They are things that we do. And as we do them, they teach us. They train us. They guide us into truth about the subject, whatever that discipline might be. Spiritual disciplines are actions that are taught and modeled throughout Scripture. Spiritual disciplines are habits that are developed, and as, those, as we do those things, as we participate in those habits, they train us, they teach us about God, 
They give us correct theology, and they also teach us about ourselves, especially ourselves in relation to God. Spiritual disciplines help us to have correct understanding of God and, like I said, of ourselves. So far in this series, we've looked at Bible reading and confession, accountability, simple living, rest, silence, solitude, giving, and hospitality. Today, in the sermon, I want to talk about prayer. Throughout this series, as uh, I prepared, I tried to be intentional about answering three questions as I prepared and uh, gave the sermons. Three questions that I tried to answer. Number one, what? What is the spiritual discipline? How? How can we practice the discipline? And thirdly, why? And I want to do that today again. The spiritual discipline of prayer. I love the fact that as I studied for this sermon, I discovered, again, was reminded that prayer is a major theme of the Bible. The people of the Old and New Testament, saints, prayed. It was part of their lives. It was something they did. Many men and women of the Bible were people, men and women, of prayer. And I also love the fact that when you study Christian history and church history, the history of the church is full of examples and stories of people, men and women, who prayed, who were known for their, their times of prayer. There are inspiring stories that can easily be found that took place over the last 2,000 years in the history of the church. And any of you can find those stories and read them and enjoy them and be blessed by them. One of those stories that I have been impressed with, and I'll just share it here in a history lesson for free. In the early 1400s, there was a man named Jan Hus. He lived in the country of Bohemia. And, yeah, I'm going to have to just tell you, I'm sure some of you are aware of this, that the European, that Europe has been a major place for war over the years. The centuries and the millennia have changed boundaries and have caused countries to no longer exist. And uh, Bohemia is one of those countries. In the early 1400s, like I already said, that's 100 years before Martin Luther and the Reformation. That's about 100 years before the Anabaptists came on the scene. And also, I should tell you that during the 1400s, it was kind of the tail end of the Dark Ages. And that period of time from about 12 to 1400 were called the Dark Ages. And it was, they were called that for a reason. It really was a terrible time to be alive on the earth. 
Life expectancy was probably at its all-time low. The Catholic Church completely dominated every strata of society. They controlled academia and education. They controlled hospitals and medicine. They controlled government, of course. And along with that, the corruption and the wickedness of the priests and the monks and the leaders of the Catholic Church was, it was unbelievable things that went on. The sinful living and the corruption was, was so strong and rampant in that time. I'm not sure if there's ever been a time, at least since then, like that time. And the country of Bohemia was a country that existed during that time. And it's roughly part of modern-day Austria, just south of Poland. Um, the Czech Republic today is, uh, would have been part of the country of Bohemia. Well, there was a man named Jan Hus, who was an influential man during that time. And he started to speak out against or about the corruption that was going on in the Catholic Church and in the world of that time, the evil, the immorality of the priests and, and the monks. And not surprisingly, I guess kind of like today, but especially in that time, when somebody spoke up against the Catholic Church and pointed and shone a light into the immorality and the corruption that was going on, Jan Hus was promptly labeled a heretic and a dangerous person. And when he didn't quit talking about the dangers and the evils of the Catholic Church, he was imprisoned and executed. Well, there were people that supported Jan Hus, and they were called the Hussites. They agreed with what he was saying. And over the next 200 years, from about 1415 to 1615, in that roughly 200-year span, the Hussites existed. They were just part of society. They were sort of loosely connected. But they opposed the Catholic Church, and especially opposed the corruption and the immorality and the, the evil of the Catholic Church. And the Hussites sort of congregated and became especially... Uh, powerful in the country of Bohemia. Well, the Thirty Year War broke out in 1618. And again, the Thirty Year War was a terrible time to be alive. And as part of that war, Pope Martin V and the armies of the Catholic government completely crushed Bohemia and the Hussites. There was mass genocide and killing, and the country of Bohemia, as a result, was broken up, and it ceased to be a country. They were forced to cease and desist. But during that terrible time of history, roughly 200 years, there was a small group of believers that experienced revival and renewal. And the writers of that time tell us and talk about that time, that renewal and that revival, they say they liken it to Pentecost. 
under terrible, difficult situations, there were believers who came to faith, and they were truly sold-out followers of Jesus Christ. And by 1700 or so, this group became known as the Moravians. And the reason they became known as the Moravians, because I've already given you the backdrop, they were chased out and, and persecuted in Bohemia. They escaped Bohemia and moved to Germany. And they moved into an area in Germany that was called Moravia. And over the next 150 years or so, they lived there, as well as immigrated to the United States, and they became known as the Moravians. The Moravians were especially known to be people of prayer. On August 27, 1727, there was a group of 24 Moravian believers together, and they were having a prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting lasted for 24 hours. They prayed around the clock for 24 hours. And at the end of that 24 hours, they decided that they would continue, to, they would go home, but the prayer would continue. And they divided, among the 24 believers that were present that, that, at that prayer meeting, they divided one-hour slots for the next 24 hours and the subsequent 24 hours, and they continued to pray. Well, there were lots of others that joined them. And they started a prayer chain And that prayer chain lasted for 100 years. Wow, that's amazing. For 100 years, there were people that prayed around the clock, Moravians, and it spread to, it, it actually spread all over the world. And it was right during the time when people were coming to the, to the United States and they brought that prayer with them. I also appreciate that Weavertown Church has been known as a group that prays. I'm proud of that fact, honored by that fact. As long as I've been connected with Weavertown, I have always known that there were people who were prayer warriors, who prayed lots. And while we don't have a prayer chain that lasted 100 years or anything such, there's a few small samples that I can easily think of of how prayer has impacted our congregation. One of, one of those that I'm thinking of is our Wednesday morning prayer meeting for men. Around 1995 and 1996, Weavertown Church was going through a tough time. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a tough time in our history. And there was a prayer meeting on a particular Wednesday morning that was organized for men at 5 o'clock in the morning, on a Wednesday morning. As close as I can recall, that was around 1995, probably in the fall of 1995. I'm not real sure on that. 
But there was a prayer meeting for men, 5 o'clock, Wednesday morning. And I think there are only several Wednesday mornings, just a, just a few Wednesday mornings since then, where there hasn't been a prayer meeting for the men of Weavertown Church. That's been attended by at least several. I appreciate that. It has been a source of strength and power for our congregation. Another example is several years ago, maybe five to seven years ago for a guess. Again, I'm not, I didn't bother, uh, I didn't check into the exact details on this. There was a prayer chain that was started, mostly from Weavertown people that started to pray for the work in New York City, and especially Brenton Rhoda's ministry to the Turkish Muslims. And uh, as nearly as I remember, there were that prayer chain, maybe not a 24-hour chain, but almost like that, continued for several years. I would say maybe two to three years that prayer chain continued, where people would take slots of time, periods of time, and prayed sort of around the clock for Brent and Rhoda's ministry. And I was impressed last November when a part of our family visited Brent's for the weekend and spent some time with their church. They mentioned that period of time as an obvious time of open doors and breakthrough. And if you remember, that was during the time when their church was formed and formalized and Brent was ordained as a pastor for that church. There were people that came to the Lord during that time, Muslims, for the first time. In the, I think they had been there maybe around 12 or 15 years already. And they had some of the first conversions that that uh, they had had during their time there. Open doors. And they named that as a real blessing for them to this very day. And I'm sure that you sitting here this morning could probably also think of times in your life where you have been impacted by prayer, where your congregation has been impacted by prayer. And my reason for stating these stories is not so much to boast, but to challenge you to do that wherever you are, to pray, to make prayer an important and absolute necessity in your life. There are two goals that I want to leave with you today, and they are goals especially from, uh, because I have been challenged by them as I studied and prepared here. I've been convicted, and I want to leave these with you as, number one, goals for this sermon, but also challenges for you. I'm convinced, number one, that many believers do not pray enough. For whatever reason, we tend not to pray as much as we ought. And secondly, when we do pray, our priorities tend not to be the same as God's priorities. I find that very challenging and convicting as I think of it. And I want to consider both of these as lessons and goals for the sermon here today. Why is prayer essential to the Christian life? Why is prayer such an important thing? Well, I have several things that I've listed here. Number one, because God is real. God is real, and we have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Some of the most foundational 
aspects of prayer is that we pray because God exists. He, he is real. He controls the world, and He created us. He has something to say about how the world goes. He has something to say about our lives, and as part of His creation, we pray to Him. We communicate. We talk to Him because He is God. He is really there. And we've been brought into a relationship as believers with God through the Holy Spirit, through the atonement of Jesus Christ. We are His sons and daughters. And we pray through Jesus who is alive, not dead, alive. He is resurrected. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the world today. And that causes us, it pushes us toward life in our lives spiritually and we prayed to him because, like I said, at its basic form, if you're a believer, prayer is the natural response to a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Just kind of like breathing is to a newborn baby. And we understand, as parents, the concern when our baby doesn't breathe. Secondly, prayer is, is essential because we are completely dependent on God. And one of the things that stands out to me about prayer in the Bible is the desperation that is often part of prayer. And part of the reason I think, I think for myself as I evaluate my own life, part of the reason I tend to pray as little as I do is because I don't have that level of desperation. I sort of naturally tend to be self-sufficient and a can-do kind of person. And so I drum up things that come up from within myself and I find myself not depending on God like I should. It causes self-sufficiency and that's a problem. Prayer is the life breath of a believer, sort of like a newborn baby breathes air. And that becomes part of our lives. We become dependent on God just like we're dependent on air to live. God gives us all things. In addition to that, we have physical provision. We have health. We have spiritual insight. We have physical and spiritual deliverances. We have strength, wisdom, perseverance, faith. All of those things come from God to us. They are gifts from God to us. They're not things that we drum up from our own strength and from our things that come from ourselves. And almost immediately into our journey of faith, into our believer, into our journey as believers, we realize that we are prone to wonder. We're prone to weakness. We're prone to confusion. We're prone to exhaustion. And so we are in constant need of God. We're in constant need of healing from our physical, from our heavenly physician. We're just soldiers. We're in a battle, a spiritual warfare, and we need resources, and we go to God for those resources. We are wholly, completely dependent on God, and that's why we should pray without ceasing, kind of like we breathe without stopping. Prayer is the natural response of a heart that knows God and knows the desperate and difficult situation that we're in as humans. And that's why we see God's people throughout Scripture praying. 
And they are, their lives are characterized by prayer. Several illustrations, and these are just some of them. There's actually quite a long list of them. Abraham prayed in Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 25, Isaac prays. Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 8, Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 21, Deuteronomy chapter 9, and throughout the Psalms, especially Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, which are Psalms that are attributed to Moses, he prays. It was part of his life. Manoah, the father of Samson, prayed in Judges chapter 13. Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Samuel, her son, prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 1 Samuel chapter 12. David, a man after God's own heart, prays. In 2 Samuel, we have prayers that are recorded by David. And throughout the Psalms, numerous and varied Psalms are attributed to David in his prayers. Solomon prays in 1 Kings chapter 8. And God honored his prayer. And Elijah prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8 and following. Ezra prayed in Ezra chapter 9. Nehemiah prayed. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, this great leader, this man who was so well able to do the job that he was on, prayer is something that just comes from Nehemiah. He's just talking and he gets himself into some situation that, and he prays. I think there's like 10 illustrations or 10 times in the book of Nehemiah where it indicates that Nehemiah prayed. Job prayed. And Job 42, and also several other places in, in the book of Job. Hezekiah, the king, prayed. Jeremiah prayed. Jonah prayed in the whale's belly of all places. Habakkuk prayed. The other prophets prayed. Daniel prayed. In Daniel chapter 6, in the lion's den, before he went into the lion's den, and also after in chapter 9, Daniel was a man of prayer who instinctively and habitually impulsively prayed, compulsively prayed. He did it just like was part of his daily routine. He did it just like he breathed. The psalmist prayed. Anna, the widow in Luke 2, prayed. And Jesus prayed. Prayer was an important part of Jesus' life while he was here on earth. Numerous and multiple times throughout the gospel, it tells us that Jesus prayed. Paul prayed throughout the epistles. There are numerous and varied prayers of Paul, and we're going to look at those just a little later. Peter prayed in Acts chapter 9 and 10. John the apostle prayed. In 3 John and also in Acts, we see him praying. The apostles in the early church prayed. Prayer was an important part of their lives. They got together and fellowshiped and prayed. Now I've told you that God is sovereign, and that means that he's supreme. He answers to no one. God is unrivaled. He is not incomplete in any way. And as human beings, we cannot imagine that. God is sovereign. That means that he is not, he has no, in, he has no deficiencies. 
There's nothing about him that's incomplete. So why do we pray? Why does he need, why are we commanded to pray? If he has everything he needs, why pray? He doesn't need our prayers. He is not deficient in some sort of way if we don't pray. And that's a legitimate question that has been asked, and rightly so. Well, I think it's important for us to understand that prayer is not merely the asking for things. And I think it's a trap that I fall into. We think of prayer as asking for things, provision, fulfilling the desires and goals that we have for our lives. We pray when we get into trouble because we need help, right? I think more and first and foremost, we need to understand that prayer prayer is fellowship. Prayer is talking to God. Prayer is communication. It involves talking and listening to God. Prayer is fellowship. And it's a means of fellowship with our Creator. Prayer provides us with an avenue of relationship, participation. I think, in a word, the word participation especially stands out to me. Prayer equals participation. I've thought of five things, five ways that prayer functions as a tool for us to participate with God. Number one, prayer is sometimes necessary a necessary means of accomplishing the ends that God has ordained or things that God has decided will be. And when we pray, we find ourselves entering into that spiritual force. Um, We obviously can't see the spiritual world. And there's people that have tried to put into words or novels or books or in some way or another have maybe had visions or imaginations or dreams of how when Christians pray, evil forces are driven back. That could be true. But when we pray, there is spiritual power that's released. And we become participants with God's program when we pray. Secondly, prayer shapes our minds around God's will. Matthew chapter 6 in the in the, the Lord's Prayer, and also in Luke chapter 11, which we read the other version in the um, scripture passage that was read before the sermon. We're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Prayer shapes our minds. The third thing, we participate with God when we pray for His grace in others. When you pray for grace, for God's grace to be poured out in others, in the lives of others, people who are in trouble, who need grace from God, when we pray, we enter into that grace. We become channels of grace. It changes how we think about the other person when we pray for them. Fourthly, prayer promotes gratitude and praise. When we pray, 
we are naturally reminded and, in, and automatically reminded that we are not really in control. God is. And when God's control is poured out or, become, or it becomes obvious, it produces gratitude and praise in our lives, and that produces growth and maturity, which ties into the fifth thing. Prayer is a means of our own sanctification and maturity. When we pray, we become molded and shaped into the image of God who we're praying to. And that is maybe especially true when there's unanswered prayer. Think about it for yourself. When, think of periods of, of time in your life where you grew most. It's not usually when things are going well. The times of the most intense growth in our Christian lives comes when there's loss and disappointment and unrealized dreams. And when we pray to God during that time, it pr produces sanctification and maturity in our lives. How should we pray? Now, I think it's neat to notice in Scripture that we are not the first believers to ask that question. We're not the first of Jesus' followers to ask how we should pray. And that's the question that the disciples came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And there's also other places in Scripture where Jesus modeled and taught his disciples how they should pray. And I'm going to take just a little bit of time to go through the Lord's Prayer, which is a model prayer for, for Christians of all time. Some help from the Lord's Prayer. How our prayers and components of our prayers should model the Lord's Prayer. Number one, the Lord's Prayer starts out with the words, Our Father. We come to God as our Father who loves us. And prayer should be, we should, to me, as, as closely as I can think through this, that is just a foundational thing that we should understand when we come to God. He is our Father. Fathers want relationship with their children. Fathers want um, to provide for their children. We're, we're naturally... Um, that's a baked-in product of being a father, is that we want to see our children um, succeed, and we want to see our children um, do well. And that's the God that we pray for, to and come to. He continues, Our Father who is in heaven, who is in heaven. I think the, that balances sort of the truth that while God is our Father and we are in a relationship with Him, as long as we are in the flesh, we're not in heaven. We're on the earth. And that distinguishes God as holy, as unequaled, as infinite, as sovereign. He is our Father, sure thing. But He is also the God of the universe. And that doesn't 
bring reluctance into our lives, it brings reverence into our lives. Hallowed be your name. What does it mean when we, are, when we ask God to make his name hallowed? We don't use that word very often in our English language today. It's sort of another word for the word great. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to make his name great and obvious in our lives. And I think that's uh, instructive for how we should make our prayers God-centered, not me-centered or man-centered. The prayer continues, your kingdom come. It is God's greatest, it, it should be the It should be the believer's greatest joy to see God's will and God's kingdom advanced here on earth. It's something that we should pray for. Part of the puzzle of the pieces that we're looking to assemble in our lives is that God's will is accomplished. The prayer continues. Give us this day our daily bread. I think Jesus brings out the fact that we should be dependent, we should, we should feel dependent on God for our daily sustenance. In our current state of abundance, I don't know that any of us have any need or prayer for daily food. I don't know for sure what that says about us or if it says anything real important but there are many places in the world where that's not the case. Daily sustenance. Think of it for a moment. While there is, we are not necessarily asking for daily food, there are other portions of our lives, lots of variables in our lives. Lots of variables, and those variables can change really quickly. Health can change in a moment. Things that we do automatically can be taken away from us. We need God's daily bread in in that way. The prayer continues and talks about our need for forgiveness. And while it's true that we have been, the Bible talks in in accounting judicial terms where it says that we have been forgiven of our sins, I think it is also still the case that we need to regularly and daily seek God's grace and His forgiveness in our lives. It should be part of our normal prayers that God, we seek God's forgiveness and grace in our lives. And 1 John 1.9 tells us that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He continues by saying that we, should, we receive forgiveness based on the, the level of forgiveness that we extend to others. It's important that our prayer lives are not stored up, pent up, anger and bitterness in our lives. And when we allow anger to throb in our hearts, unchecked, the Bible indicates that it becomes a measure of God's hearing or answering our prayers. 
The prayer continues where we pray to be delivered from temptation or testing, delivered from evil. Again, this prayer should come as a result of our desire, our desperation to not have evil penetrate our hearts and minds, but be delivered from that. And that protection comes from God. I came across this little reading that I'm just going to read here, take the time to read here. Uh, Paraphrases the Lord's Prayer, breaks it down into sections. Here it is. I cannot pray our if my faith has no room for others and their need. I cannot pray Father if I do not demonstrate this relationship to God in my daily living. I cannot pray who art in heaven if all of my interests and pursuits are in earthly things. I cannot pray hallowed be thy name if I am not striving with God's help to be holy. I cannot pray thy kingdom come if I am unwilling to accept God's rule in my life. I cannot pray thy will be done if I am unwilling or resentful of having it in my life. I cannot pray on earth as it is in heaven unless I am truly ready to give myself to God's service here and now. I cannot pray give us this day our daily bread without expending honest effort for it. Or if I would withhold from my neighbor the bread that I receive. I cannot pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, if I continue to harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot pray, lead us into temptation if I deliberately choose choose to remain in a situation where I'm likely to be tempted. I cannot pray, deliver us from evil if I'm not prepared to fight evil with my life and my prayer. I cannot pray, Thine is the kingdom, if I, am willing, if I am unwilling to obey the king. I cannot pray, Thine is the power and the glory, if I am seeking power for myself or seeking glory for my own life. I cannot pray forever and ever if I am anxious about the things of today. I cannot pray, Amen, unless I honestly say, Cost what it may, this is my prayer. Paul prayed, and throughout his writings, the epistles, we can see that heartthrob of God as he writes to believers in certain and specific churches that prayer was a major part of Paul's life. He prayed for believers. Some other instructions on prayer. I looked for some, I created a list of places in the New Testament where we're commanded to pray, and specifically what we should pray for. And here's a partial list. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, we're asked to pray for our enemies and those that are mean to us. 
Matthew chapter 9, we should pray for the Lord to send workers into the harvest. In Matthew 24, we're to pray for perseverance during times of persecution. In Matthew 26, we're to pray to be protected from temptation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, in Romans 12, in Ephesians chapter 6, in Colossians chapter 4, it indicates that we're to pray without stopping. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, we're to pray in response or as, a, as an antidote for anxiety and apprehension. And 1 Thessalonians 5, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're to pray for our spiritual leaders. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we're commanded to pray for our national leaders. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're to offer prayers of thanksgiving for things like marriage and for food. In James chapter 5, verse 13, we're called to pray when we're suffering physically and spiritually and emotionally. And in James chapter 5, verse 14, the following verse, it turns that around and it says that we're to pray to God for others when they are suffering. In all of these instructions to pray, the idea, the thought is present that we are not to give up when we pray. We're to keep seeking, to keep knocking, to keep asking, not only for the bread that we need, but bread for others. And I'm not going to take the time to go into Luke 11, and that is one of the foundational passages that I think of in terms of prayer. And the point of that parable is that the desperate man that was asking for bread from his neighbor, waking him up in the middle of the night, was not asking for bread for himself, but he was asking for bread for others. I think it's such a foundational part of prayer. The tendency for us is to think of prayer as something we do for us. And it is. It is. I'm not convinced that it's primarily that. I know for sure it's not only that. As I close, I give some thoughts about prayer in review and also, um, yeah, in closing. The bottom line in our understanding of prayer is that it is an act of worship. When we pray, we demonstrate to God that He is God. We enter into an act of worship when we pray. It is profoundly more, much, much more than bringing to God a grocery list of things that we need and want. Prayer begins and ends with the recognition that there is something more ultimate in the universe than you and I. We are not little gods that walk around telling God what to do, calling the shots in our relationships. God does that. And when we pray, we demonstrate recognition of that truth. 
We are not the ultimate in the universe. Prayer is not bringing our list to God and asking Him to sign on the bottom. It's the opposite, actually. We bring, like, a blank sheet of paper. We bring that paper, that blank sheet, to God with our name signed at the bottom. And God fills in the details. True prayer is not usually spoken in a panic. But it's spoken in a spirit of trust and rest. When we pray, we are speaking to the one person, the one who is not in any way bound by limitations, who is not in any way limited, who is not in any way disserviced, who is not in any way incomplete. We are praying to a person who is sovereign. He is ultimate. He is in complete control. There are no deficiencies in any sort of way. As human beings, that is just mind-blowing. We, we cannot fathom that, in, that. There's nothing about our life that is even remotely close to that. And so we don't bring things to him that are self-focused. And things that revolve around our claustrophobic little kingdoms of ourselves. When we pray, we are acknowledging that there are still parts of God's work that need to be done in our life and in our world and in our society and in our family. And when we bring our needs to God, when we talk to Him about what's going on in our lives, we're recognizing that there's still work to be done. There's still sanctification that needs to happen. There's still growth. There's still maturity. There's, there's need. That's why we pray. And God is so gracious. God is so gracious. And my desire is that as we see prayer, that we see it as a way of being blown away by God's grace. in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Prayer can be that, and it should be that for us. I invite you to stand together as I close with prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and asking for your guidance and grace on our lives. And as we go forth from here, I pray, Lord, that you would receive us, receive our lives, receive our um, incomplete persons as we are. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us and grow us, mature us, develop us, and help us, Father, to be delivered from thoughts of completeness, of self-sufficiency. Continue to remind us of our need of you. And I pray that as we pray and communicate with you, that we would um, develop that understanding, not only of who you are, but also who we are. And thank you so much for your grace that is so poured out and abundant in our lives and in our day today. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.